Hi, Marie Prusima. Well, as usual, I have a cut, paste, and edit the quotes, and I've drawn from uh, quite a few, a number of commentators, and even spliced the comments together. Uh, there's so many of them, and since it's a sermon and not an academic exercise, I'm not going to cite each one by name because we get confused. All these things Jesus spoke in parables to the multitudes, and without parables, he did not speak to them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today we're going to take uh, some time talking about the very short Gospel reading which was taken from the 13th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. As we've just heard, our Lord told two parables in this passage, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. We'll quickly consider each of those. Our Lord stated that, quote, the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is the least indeed of all seeds, close quote. Uh, Dr. Alfred Eidersheim is a 19th century Jewish convert who went on to become an Oxford professor and an Anglican priest, comments that at the time of our Lord, quote, the seed of the mustard plant passed in popular parlance as the smallest of seeds. In fact, the expression small as a mustard seed had become proverbial. It was used not only by our Lord, but frequently by the rabbis to indicate the smallest amount, such as the least drop of blood, the least defilement, the smallest remnant of sun glow in the sky. Close quote. We continue. Our Lord, which is indeed the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown up, it is greater than all herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and dwell in the branches thereof. The commentators note that, quote, a grown black mustard can reach about 10 feet high. Indeed, it no longer looks like a large garden herb or shrub, but appears like a tree, not in comparison with other trees, but with garden shrubs. A grown black mustard would still be an herb, botanically speaking, but sometimes a very big herb, popularly considered a shrub. There are wild mustard plants over 10 feet tall near the Jordan River. The stem of mustard plant also becomes dry and wood-like, which gives it the aspect of a tree." Close so in our Lord's day, the size of a mustard seed was popularly used to describe something really tiny, yet it grows to something much greater uh, in height than other garden herbs, even as high as 10 feet, quite literally the size of a small tree. And uh, the imagery of this little parable would have reminded his listeners, who were themselves basted in the Old Testament, it would have reminded them, among other things, of the prophecy found in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel, where the Messiah is described as a twig from which a great tree, the messianic kingdom, sprouts forth. And I quote from Ezekiel, a tender twig shall shoot forth into branches and shall bear fruit and shall become a great cedar. And all birds shall dwell under it and every fowl shall make its nest under the shadow of the branches thereof. But this idea of a small, almost invisible beginning to the messianic kingdom clashed with the popular notions of what was in store, because in large part, the Jews have been led to expect a Messiah very similar to the one they're still expecting today. According to a current Jewish website, the Messiah they're currently expecting uh, should be, quote, a great political leader descended from King David, who knows how they'll know that, who would be very well versed in Jewish law, observant of its commandments, and who'd be a great judge who makes righteous decisions who would be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow his example, and who would be a great military leader who will win battles for Israel. 
He would bring about the political and spiritual redemption of the Jewish people by bringing them back to Israel and restoring Jerusalem. He will establish a government in Israel that will be the center of all world government, both for Jews and Gentiles. He will rebuild the temple and reestablish his worship. He will restore the religious court system of Israel and establish Jewish law as the law of the land." Close quotes. Now, since they rejected the Messiah, uh, since they rejected uh, the Christ, the man the Jews are actually looking forward to right now, the man whose description we just heard is the Antichrist, but that's a topic for another day. At any rate, for the most part, they were expecting a great military and political leader to rule the nations, but basically a great glorious triumphant king in the worldly sense of that word. But instead of sorting, starting with this sort of messianic splendor, our Lord is pointing out that his kingdom starts with the smallest of beginnings, not with some great military or political triumph, but instead with something very inconspicuous. But in spite of that tiny, small beginning, his kingdom will grow from those tiny beginnings to fill the world, sheltering all those who enter into the Messianic kingdom. In other words, sheltering all those who enter into the Holy Catholic Church. We continue with the Gospel. Quote, Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Close quote inspired, inerrant word of God. So the last parable spoke of the spread of the kingdom of God over the world. This parable takes a different angle while speaking of the growth of the kingdom of God. Only a little yeast is kneaded into the dough, and yet over time its effect spreads through the whole dough, causing it to rise. And just as the yeast causes dough to rise from within, so also the kingdom of God first changes a man's heart, then that changes his behavior. It works the same way in a society. That's just what happened, in fact, with our Lord and the Twelve Apostles. And without meaning to be the slightest bit irreverent, if we were able to be personally present in Galilee some 2,000 years ago, and we would have been able to ask our Lord, Lord, what are you planning to do with those 12 guys there? What are you planning to do? Even though he spoke in parables, we're going to see why in just a minute. If we would have asked our Lord, what are you planning to do with those 12 men? Our Lord could have easily answered, well, those 12 men, I'm planning to overthrow paganism and convert the world. And they did it. They did it. Only a little yeast needed in the dough, and yet over time, its effect spread throughout the dough, causing it to rise from paganism to Christianity. Now obviously the effect that the kingdom of God should have should be like the effect that yeast has on bread dough. It should gradually fill and transform not just our lives, but that of society in which we find ourselves. Well, addressing this very point, that great bishop, father, and doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom makes a comment that's well worth pondering. I quote, if 12 men leavened nearly all the meal of the world, consider, how, consider diligently how great our wickedness and sloth must be, although we are so many, are not able to convert the remnant of the pagans, when well, we ought to be sufficient to convert a thousand worlds. Close quote. There's a lot more than 12 of us here. But what does Western Pennsylvania and Northeast Ohio look like? 
If 12 men live in nearly all the male of the world, consider how great our wickedness and sloth must be. Although we are so many, we're not able to convert our neighbors. We ought to be sufficient for a thousand worlds. We continue in the gospel. All these things Jesus spoke in parables to the multitudes. Without parables, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled which was spoke by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables of other things hidden from the foundation of the world. Close quote, the inspired inner word of God. Now, why did our Lord speak in parables to the multitudes? It was not always this way. In the earlier chapters of St. Matthew's Gospel, our Lord speaks plainly, without parables. He actually doesn't start using parables until the 13th chapter of the Gospel, the very chapter from which this passage is taken. Why is this? Why did he switch from straightforward, plain talk to parables? What does that mean? If we turn back a few chapters in the Gospel, we see that in chapter 10, our Lord had specifically given his apostles miraculous powers. Quote, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of diseases and all manner of infirmities. Close quote. And then he sent them out, commanding them to preach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and to, quote, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Close quote. All of which would have been clear signs demonstrating that the faith they were preaching was of God, to persuade all those to whom they preached to believe in Christ, that by casting out devils and healing the bodies and infirmities, they might thereby heal souls of unbelief. We see that in chapter 11, quote, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities, close quote. So he goes on. But what was the response to his preaching and miracles? Listen carefully to this slightly abbreviated passage. Then he began to upbraid the cities wherein were done the most of his miracles. Woe to thee, Chorazin, woe to thee, Bethsaida, for if in Tyre and Sidon, now Tyre and Sidon are pagan cities, for if in Tyre and Sidon had been wrought the miracles that had been wrought in you, they had long ago done penance in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, thou shalt go down even unto hell. For if in Sodom had been wrought the miracles that had been wrought in thee, perhaps it remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Close quote, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it seems that the mass of the Jewish listeners, and remember at that time, Biblical Judaism was the one true church that was supposed to be preparing for and anticipating the arrival of Christ our Lord. The mass of his Jewish listeners couldn't really be bothered by our Lord in spite of his preaching miracles. In fact, he points out that the pagans and even Sodom, Sodom would have been more receptive to his preaching and his miracles than the Jewish people. Although they did not know yet that this is God Almighty speaking, nevertheless, our Lord has given more than enough evidence 
to prove he's sent by God. And in fact, that's been obvious since the very beginning of his ministry. In fact, Nicodemus, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus himself made that clear when he, quote, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent by God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Close quote. We know that you're a teacher sent by God. So they're without excuse. They're without excuse. They know darn good and well that our Lord has been sent by God. And here he is warning them about their judgment. And flat telling them that it's going to go better for the pagans and even for the residents of Sodom than it will for them on judgment day. And these are the members of the one true church. It's unbelievably bad. And it gets worse. A lot worse in chapter 12. When after entering a synagogue and seeing a man with a withered hand, the Pharisees asked him, quote, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And why did they ask him that? Was it because they really wanted to know the answer? No. They didn't want to know the answer. The scriptures tell us exactly why they asked him, quote, so that they might accuse him. So they might accuse him. Well, the Lord isn't having any of it, so he traps them with a question. What man of you, if he has one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it up? No answer, of course. Our Lord continues, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out thy hand. The man stretched it out and it was restored whole like the other. So they repented, right? After he heals his hand. They repented, they apologized. They said they were sorry for trying to trap him. They thanked him for showing the error of the ways and praised him for healing this crippled man, right? Not quite. Quote, but the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how to destroy him. They're not interested in the truth. As terrifying as the judgment's going to be on the residents of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, it's going to be worse for these Pharisees. After all, the residents of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are guilty of sinful indifference to our Lord, His miracles, and His message. They're not guilty of not responding. They're guilty of not responding. They're guilty of not uh, repenting. But the Pharisees are even worse. Not only are they guilty of not responding to our Lord's preaching, they've even begun to lay traps for him. And now they've taken counsel on how to destroy him. There's a particular degree of malice here we shouldn't lose sight of. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, so I'm going to quote from sources favorable to the Pharisees here. So this is from the Jewish Encyclopedia, quote, The Pharisees added new restrictions to the biblical law. The Pharisees claimed the same authority, even in the case of error, for the decisions of their scribes as for the biblical law. And they went so far to say that anyone who transgressed the decisions of their scribes deserved death. 
Close quotes, the Jewish Encyclopedia. Okay, so what we're dealing with here are men who are so insanely proud, actually they're diabolically proud, that they claim the same authority for their decisions, even if their decisions should turn out to be wrong. They claim the same authority for their decisions as that of Holy Scripture. And they teach that anyone who transgresses their decisions of their scribes should be put to death. Now think about that for a minute. The Pharisees claim the same authority for their decisions, even should they turn out to be wrong, as for Scripture, and that anyone who transgressed the decisions of their scribes should be put to death. So in terms of law-giving, they have literally made themselves equal to God. Now, by the way, the Jewish Virtual Library, this is fable to the Pharisees, the Jewish Virtual Library tells us, quote, the Pharisees are the spiritual fathers of modern Judaism, close quote. The Pharisees are the spiritual fathers of modern Judaism, which makes it perfectly clear they are not our elder brothers in the faith. They don't have any faith. Okay, so the Pharisees have got their own little agenda. It's pretty clear they're not interested in the truth. It's pretty clear they're not interested in being taught by our Lord. They're there to judge him. It's given, given that they claim the same authority for their decisions as for biblical law, given that in terms of law-giving they've literally made themselves the equals of God, it's easy to see why they're so furious at him for not following their, their little rules. It's easy to see why they're so furious at him for not heeding their oftentimes uncharitable and sometimes even evil rules. After all, according to them, their rules, even when they're wrong, as they so obviously are regarding not healing on the Sabbath, their rules must be obeyed as having the force of biblical law. And according to them, anyone transgresses the decisions of their scribes deserves death. And there's another reason that men like this would really, really hate our Lord. In terms of their rules and decisions, they expect to be consulted. They expect to be deferred to. They expect to be obeyed. And now not only is our Lord not consulting him, not only is our Lord not deferring to them, not only is our Lord not obeying him, worse yet, by force of his preaching, by force of his miracles, he's gathering people to himself. And instead of rejoicing at the wonderful works their Lord's doing, instead of rejoicing because he's obviously been sent by God, they resent the attention given to the Lord. They resent it. They hate it. They're actually unhappy at these blessings and healings falling upon their neighbors, simply because they have a lust to be praised. They have a lust to be acclaimed by the crowds. They consider themselves entitled to those praises because they're filled through and through with envy. Charity, of course, rejoices in another's good. Charity rejoices in another's blessings. But envy, envy regards another's good as an obstacle to personal advantage. The envious man acts as if another's good somehow reduces his own excellence. The envious man has joy at another one's misfortune and sadness at his success. Envy masks itself behind false pretenses under this cloak of virtual compassion and it won't rest until its rival is conquered, its reputation is slandered and smeared and ultimately, until he's nailed to a cross. 
Once we see all this, it's a lot easier to understand why the Pharisees took counsel on how to destroy our Lord. And they don't waste any time attacking. Later in this chapter, the people bring a possessed man to our Lord and healed him. And we read the quote, And the multitudes were amazed and said, Is this not the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, that this man casts out demons. Now this is truly satanic. A commentary states, quote, The Pharisees attributed the miracles of Christ, wrought by the Spirit of God, to Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Now this kind of sin is usually accompanied with so much obstinacy, with such willful opposition to the Spirit of God, and such willful opposition to the known truth, that men who are guilty of it are seldom or never converted, because they will not repent. Close quote. So it's truly terrifying. And in fact, this is the turning point where our Lord changed from straightforward, plain speech to parables. Why? As we'll see, the parables of our Lord are, by virtue of their form, as well as their content, a rebuke to men like the Pharisees, a rebuke to the majority of the residents of Chorazin, Decide, and Capernaum, a rebuke to all his listeners who are not committed to the truth. In other words, a rebuke to all those of bad will. And his parables were not only a rebuke, but also warning of coming judgment. Now why is that? Because a parable hides the truths which it contains from those who are not open to the truth, and yet it's understandable to those who are open to the truth. As one commentary puts it, Jesus used parables for two purposes, to reveal and to conceal divine mysteries. Parables invite the humble to reach behind the images and to lay hold of God's truth. Conversely, they obstruct the proud and conceal divine mysteries from the unworthy, and thus have a second negative function, and are spoken of as judgments on the faithless. In Matthew, Jesus shifts from straightforward teaching to parables, immediately following his rejection by the Pharisees. He speaks parables for the benefit of the faithful and for the judgment of unbelievers. This points to a great truth. God has given the people every chance to accept the message of Jesus. His ministry was attested by miracles. He offered the proper credentials as the Messiah, and they did not believe him. The realities of the kingdom, therefore, were not theirs to know. The people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah would understand the parables. They would comprehend the great truths of the kingdom of God. Close quotes. So a parable hides the truths which it contains from those that are not open to truth, while at the same time it's understandable to those who are open to the truth. Our Lord explains his use of parables in a passage in chapter 13 of St. Matthew's Gospel. It's just a few lines before today's reading. He's just switched, as we've seen, from straightforward plain speech to begun teaching in parables, and the disciples asked him, quote, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, You shall indeed hear, but never understand, and you shall indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their ears are heavy of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest they should perceive with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart 
and turn for me to heal them. Close quote. Okay. Well, for those who are wondering why our Lord is speaking in parables, that explanation might not seem to so, so clear. So what does it mean? Our Lord is citing a passage in the sixth chapter of the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah is commissioned to preach to Israel. We'll flip to Isaiah chapter six and read that passage and see if we can discover why our Lord started speaking in parables. Lord God is speaking to Isaiah and he says, quote, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And of course, we just heard our Lord saying that to the apostles that that prophecy had been fulfilled by the Jews of his time, that this is the state that they are now in, by and large, and that's truly a frightening statement. In other words, between his miracles and his preaching, the people had been given every chance to accept our Lord's message, but they chose not to. And since a parable hides the truth which it contains from those who are not open to the truth, the mysteries of the kingdom of God were not theirs to know. There's more that Isaiah continues, and this is really important lines. Quote, then I said, how long, O Lord? So here's Isaiah asking, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, the land is a desolate waste. The Lord removes people far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Close quote. So the prophet Isaiah was commanded to preach to the people of Israel until the land and the cities lie waste and desolate. In other words, by citing this passage from the prophet Isaiah, our Lord is making the point that Judea in the first century, where he is preaching and doing miracles, is in the same wretched condition as Israel was in the days of Isaiah. Their minds and hearts are closed to the truth. And as a consequence, Judea is facing the same outcome as Israel got, its cities laid waste, and its people slaughtered and scattered. The very fact that our Lord began teaching in parables was itself a prophetic sign of the upcoming judgment on the nation. As we've already seen right from the beginning of his ministry, even the Sanhedrin knew that our Lord had been sent by God. They knew. Nicodemus told them as much. Our Lord taught in parables because the hearts of people were not open to his message. They heard his message, but they didn't understand. He didn't hide the truth from them. They didn't want to hear. Their hearts and minds were closed. Don't bother me with that. The people who believed would understand the parables. The people whose hearts and minds were open to the truth, who were seeking the truth, would understand the parables because our Lord intended the veiled meaning of his words to be revealed to anyone seeking the truth to be found in them. But as we know, the great majority just weren't interested. He was preaching to a perverse generation. His message reached a remnant of Israel, but left the rest hardened, unresponsive, and under his judgment. And that judgment fell. It fell on the nation as a whole in AD 70 when the Roman legions under Titus Vespasian descended upon the Holy Land and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And that judgment certainly fell upon all those whose minds and hearts were closed to the truth, all those who had rejected Christ, all those who had rejected his miracles and preaching. That judgment fell upon each one of them, 
when, immediately after their death, they had to appear before him to render an account of their refusal to believe. Let's close. There's a lot to think about here, a lot to ponder. This was actually a difficult sermon for me to write because as I was writing this sermon, there were a lot of troubling thoughts that kept coming to my mind. I'll just mention two. First, thoughts of the contrast between charity and envy. As we've seen, charity rejoices in another's good, but the envious man acts as if another's good somehow reduces his excellence. The envious man has joy in another's misfortune and sorrow at his success. Envy masks itself under false pretenses. It masquerades under a cloak of virtue and compassion, but it won't rest till its rival is destroyed. His reputation is slandered and smeared till he's been conquered and destroyed. Do we praise God for the gifts he showered down on those around us? Or do we somehow see those gifts as taken away from our, our excellence, our reputation, our glory? How many faithful are inflamed with envy? And especially, how many priests are infected with envy? The horror stories I could tell, it's terrifying. Finally, as we've seen, at the time of our Lord, there weren't many of the faithful whose minds and hearts were open to the truth. For the most part, they weren't seeking the truth. They didn't really want to know the truth. They were kind of comfortable where they were at. And judgment fell on each one of them when immediately after death, they had to appear before truth incarnate to render an account. Judgment's gonna fall on each one of us when immediately after death, we'll have to appear before truth incarnate to render an account. How many of us are seeking the truth? How many of us really have hearts and minds open to the truth? How many of us are really seeking first the kingdom of God? How many?